0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast, I'm Tristan Grunow. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Miriam Waddles, Associate Professor in the Department of History of Art and Architecture at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Waddles is the author of Meiji Daughters, Their Stuff and Fancy in Brocade Pictures, 1870s to 1880s, in the Meiji at 150 digital teaching resource. As well as the life and afterlives of Hanabusa Icho, artist Rebel Avedo, published by Brill in 2013. Dr. Waddles, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Now I wanted to talk with you because you collaborated with us on our Meiji at 150 digital teaching resource. You wrote a visual essay entitled "Meiji Daughters: Their Stuff and Fancy in Brocade Pictures." Can you tell us a little bit more about this article and then also situate it within your larger research questions?
1: Sure. You asked me to do this, and the parameters of this article were to use what was in the collection. And I was interested in the photographs as well, but that was too much for one article, so I decided to limit myself to the prints And the Beijing genre was popular from the Edo period. So this is a new formulation of the Beijing genre. And what I really wanted to get at was the double-edged sword, the flip side of these beautiful women in the creation of the textiles, the fabrics, and the labor, the feminine labor that went into it. So It's kind of a long article, but by the bottom of the article, as you scroll down, you get to the factory girls, the Cole, that whole side of the picture. I think in my research in general, I really like to try to get at what's not obvious, what's been marginalized. One thing that really has informed my research is Raymond Williams, Marxist take on culture. What I think about a lot is his formulation of the dominant, the residual, and the emergent in culture in general. So, what I've always been interested in is the residual, which is generally ignored. The dominant message is what is put out there and what people take for granted. And what I like to think about is what is underneath what people take for granted. And so for me, looking at these ukiyo-e pictures of early Meiji, there was the new dominant, the emergent, of the westernization. So I was describing those. But beyond that, underneath that, there was the feminine labor that was involved in the creation of these fabrics and how that changed. But these pictures were part of the visual culture at the time. And there are actually more prints available. In a way, it was propaganda to try to get the women to work in these factories. And the way that it's residual is that they were using old visual patterns, old visual forms to try to get people involved in this new type of labor.
0: And so then we have these images of women doing new forms of labor, but then there's also new forms of artistic production coming in at the time. And you've looked especially at the emergence of this Nihonga medium. Can you tell us a little bit more about how portraiture changes during the Meiji period?
1: Well, during the Meiji period, all of a sudden, Japan was joining the rest of the world and competing in terms of visual language and What happened in Japan was bifurcation of what was coming from the West and what they considered their own painting, Uh, but it was really a reinvention of the traditions in Nihonga, and it was really a emerging of the iconography of the past along with new content, really. So... One early article that I wrote had to do with Yokoyama Taikan's orientalization of India, which really was emergence of religious symbology of India, the Madonna, but also a Japanese Buddhist triad. In lots of ways, there are various currents, and I think Raymond Williams' way of considering a triad of dominant, residual, and emergent is very useful for thinking of various shifts that happened.
0: Another way of looking at these shifts is looking at the different forms of artistic production over multiple publications. And I understand your next book is actually looking at six different types of publication over this pretty large span, all the, going all the way back to the early 18th century up until the early 20th century. Uh,
1: my next book is about, very simply, it's about early manga that doesn't look like manga, that nobody would recognize. This is during the period of late Meiji through Taisho, and it's called Drawing Relations, from Giga to Manga, 1860 to 1930. For me, what's exciting about it is that during this period, manga was considered the term that artists could be experimental. It was drawing freely. It's kind of a catch-all category. And in general, it was done more loosely and more quickly than other types of painting. But it was a place where artists could express their critique of society, a place for humor, a place for narrative. So that's what's really been forgotten in today's manga. I always have my students try to think about whether this is manga or not. And in general, people are very used to the stylistic parameters of manga, the way it's developed in the last 50, 60 years. And they don't like to see this more experimental forms of it as manga. So in that sense, too, I'm looking at something that has really been marginalized, forgotten, That was true of the period. I think with Meiji Taisho, in general, people have dealt with the dominant message and talked about the hegemony of Meiji, the official message, and the unofficial resistance tends to be overlooked. And in general, the Taisho period is known for democracy and freedom, romance, But when people tell a longer history, they tend to overlook the Taisho period because the way Taisho democracy turned into fascism just doesn't really work. And to me, that early manga was all about freedom and democracy. And taking another look at it, I think, helps people to realize a creativity that was there, that can be achieved again.
0: That's a great point about how today we don't necessarily think of manga as always necessarily being a political medium. But looking back into the Meiji period, I'm reminded of all these editorial cartoons from the people's rights movement of the 1880s, for example, criticizing the Meiji government. Can you give a few examples of how earlier forms of manga that you're looking at were being political, where you said they were marginalized, they were also critiquing society? What would be a few examples of that?
1: Well, Kawanabe Kyosai from early Meiji was very involved in humor and his very famous Nipponchi, which is a way of talking about uh, Japan punch, punch being the humor magazine of Britain that was spread around the world. In that little magazine that wasn't circulated very widely, he did caricatures, one about the Westerners and the Japanese wanting to take over Taiwan. And Taiwan is depicted as a big bowl. Thai, big, and Wan is bowl. And they're all trying to eat out of this bowl. So that's a very early example of a political cartoon in the Meiji period. Nipponchi came out, I think, in the 1860s or 1870s. So Kyosai, among other artists, was doing a lot of political cartoons. Then Marumaru Chimbun is another publication that started from 1877, and they were all about the people's rights movement. And so that journal is full, really, really full of political statements, visual statements. And what's interesting about Maramara Moon is the way they were experimenting with the Western way of depicting things. In a way, that was very humorous to the people at the time, because it was so different. One thing that I heard from somebody who's now passed away, she was in her 90s at the time, and this was probably about 20 years ago that I heard from her, was how really strange and weird the Western way of depicting space and depth was to her. To her, it seemed like the page was wobbling as she looked at it. So I think about that in terms of the new way of rendering things, and the strangeness of it. And then later with the wars, Russo-Japanese War, Kisazawa Rakuten, who did depictions that were really very Western-derived, he was also mostly doing political cartoons until the political crackdown so, for the first few decades of the twentieth century, political cartoons abounded, mostly they called those pontiers, and there were small horizontal books that were full of um, political cartoons and people making fun of westernization so yes, political cartoons were really a lot of what manga was about and Late Meiji, early 20th century. The reason I got interested in all of this is uh, my work on Hanabusa Icho, which was my first book. And I characterize him as an artist rebel. And he was really one of the first artists that became renowned for being a rebel. And part of his rebelliousness had to do with the way he exploited parody visual parody, visual puns. And these days, it's kind of hard to understand because they're so subtle and they're based on references that we don't know. But throughout the Edo period, he was a gendoku living around 1700. Throughout the whole time of the Edo period, he was really renowned as someone of an artistic Jesse Dames character. He was sent into exile, probably for being involved in the wrong people. But the legend was that he had satirized the shogun's concubine, and people really got into the idea that uh, there was a rebel who was an artist, and they liked to collect his work. So my interests really have to do with what is marginalized, who's resisting the humor in that, and trying to uncover What has the dominant culture tried to bury in a way?
0: Speaking of Hanabu Saicho as one of these artist rebel figures using arts more politically, I understand recently you've been involved in some activism in your own right and, in fact, published this article in the Asia-Pacific Journal, Japan Focus, engaging in some public activism as well.
1: Yes, well, I think now that we're really in the 21st century, a lot of the problems that arose really from late 19th century world capitalism have just worsened. And there's a terrible migration problem, which has to do with people not being able to do work in their own country. And the political situations just make it unlivable for people. So I got interested in the detention center in Japan, where people are set to be deported from Japan. And these are really the most marginalized in Japan. So I started visiting there and I decided to translate and adapt an article by a leader of a group there to highlight her 25 years of activism. I didn't feel that I could just dip into it and write about it. So it's a good way of really elevating what she's doing and showing the people who are interested that, first of all, there is a problem in Japan, as there is in the rest of the world. And secondly, that Japanese are not being passive about it. There is resistance against it and people who are trying to raise awareness. But at the same time, I found myself interested in the problems of being really incarcerated, and how the lives of the detainees might be made a little easier by artwork. So there was a cartoonist who was detained. And so in this article, I, I highlighted the cartoons, which really are political cartoons.
0: Now, the only thing I know about Ushiku, and I'm embarrassed to say now, is the Ushiku Daibutsu, giant Buddhist statue in Ushiku. And there's something kind of poetic about that, that there's this giant Buddhist statue almost overlooking this detention center. Could you talk about who are the people being detained there? How do they get there? You said they're waiting to be deported from Japan. Tell us a little bit more about the people who are there.
1: Yes, it is kind of ironic that the Daibutsu is overlooking this detention center, and it's very visible from outside the detention center. This is a very isolated area, and the official name of this detention center is East Japan Immigration Center. They don't have detention center in there. It's a euphemism. And the people who are in there don't like to think that they're prisoners and what they're constantly saying is we haven't done anything. And really, they haven't. There are three types of people. There's the overstayers from their visa. So an argument could be made that they shouldn't have been in Japan. And The arrest of those type of people is happening around the world. But the problem with that is that a lot of people are not being arrested. A lot of people are illegally living in Japan. So it's just really bad luck that some people are being arrested. And there is a real labor shortage in Japan, which they're trying to address through just short-term guest laborers. So there's a real problem there. Second category is people who are just arrested straight from the airport. People have brokers and they get a visa to Japan. And they think that they'll be able to gain asylum there. And that's not at all true anymore. And the third type of people who are detained are really the saddest case. These are people who've lived in Japan very often for decades at a time and have um, Japanese families, Japanese wives and kids. And they've been picked up because of a recent crackdown, really in Japan, I think reflecting the toughening against all kinds of immigrants. And legally, they have to be sent back to the country where they came from. And they no longer have a home there. The children are picked up if they're stateless. So it's really a very sad situation.
0: In the article, you profile, as you mentioned, these political cartoons. Can you talk a little bit more about the cartoons? And do you see any commonality to, say, the political art that you've also researched earlier in the Meiji and into the Edo period?
1: Yeah, I didn't really get to discuss this very much in the article. I just alluded to it. But what was really interesting to me in the cartoons were the stereotypes and the problem of depicting the the oppressor or the other. And so FYK depicted the Japanese in a really 1930s racist stereotype with buck teeth. And in one rendering, he made the skin totally yellow. He made them into feudal samurai. And also as well, I'll say here, in some of his early depictions, he was depicting the Africans in very, even more racialized ways, like with a bone on top of the head. And these were put on on a website, and people made claims against them, so they were taken down, and we told him about it. And uh, he said, oh, but the people don't mind. But, of course, people do mind. So the question that those political cartoons raised for me was... Uh, the question of the stereotype and the simplifications of the battle, if you will. And what I like to try to get at is not the dichotomies, but humanizing the various sides. And I know that some of the guards, some of the officials in the center are really very human. They're just stuck in a system. But in these cartoons, it's depicted very much as us against them. But the other thing that FYK did in his cartoons is he, he really helped in a feeling of alliance between the detainees who are from all different parts of the world, speaking all different languages, completely different religions. He would help them feel close to each other by depicting them with arms around each other, very friendly with each other. He really helped the relations between them, the feeling of solidarity. That was very interesting to me.
0: And in addition to your work documenting this activist art, you're also working, I understand, more recently on emotional history. So could you tell us a little bit more about that and how these things are connected?
1: Sure. Yes, I do feel like the world is in a crisis and some people are being very marginalized. One interest I might have in the future is jail art. But another vein that my research is going in is considering emotional history, which is very new in Western European history, only from the 1990s or so, and it really hasn't been explored in Japanese studies. If you think about it, emotions are very culturally, and historically specific, the way they're framed. And of course, Japanese ways of thinking about emotion were very different in the Edo period, in the medieval period, but certainly in the Meiji period, when Western ideas of emotionality, in particular love, came in. And so with a number of other people, especially Mark Jones, who's at Connecticut State University, We're going to collaborate on a conference and a volume that we're entitling An Emotional Revolution, Loves and Loyalties in Imperial Japan. As I started working on it, I was really captivated by something that Takamura Itsue wrote in 1917. She declared that modern Japan had undergone an emotional revolution. I really look forward to how people are going to explore this emotional revolution. We expanded from just loves to loyalties. These are both motivating emotions related to human and institutional attachment. And we're going to take people from all different disciplines, drama, cinema, history, law, religious studies, and explore this real dramatic shift in emotions and i think this really reflects how i strongly believe in interdisciplinarity we can't do things by ourselves we need people who are working in different modes of representation different modes of thinking institutions the law and hopefully we can change our ideas of what happened in the past
0: Meji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca.
1: Thank you for listening.